Studies in John's Gospel, this is part 23. The title I gave it is, Only Christ's Rule on His Terms Can Make Our Lives Whole. John chapter 6, we're starting. John chapter 6, and I'm going to read the first 15 verses. You know this account. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. He's making them well. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. For now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Six. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Seven. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? He does not look like an idiot. He points out five loaves, two fish. But, but then again, what am I talking about? That's useless anyway. And he must have been surprised. Ten. Jesus, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place. The men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples... Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, remember John uses that word sign, eight of them in John's gospel. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he takes off. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I have a longer introduction and a shorter sermon in tow. That's my plan. You know what they say about plans. It is hard to get a sense of the passing of time when you're reading any of the gospel accounts. The chapters just flow quickly one after another. The events seem to happen with only brief moments in between, about as long as it takes you to turn the page. In fact, about one year has passed since chapter 5, the healing of the lame man by the pool, About a year has passed, taking the record of all the synoptics, 
putting them together, the time between the healing of the lame man and the feeding of the 5,000 was filled with other aspects of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, including many other miracles, the Sermon on the Mount, some of the early parables, the sending out of the disciples two by two, all of that's taken place. Also, the feeding of the 5,000 is significant in John's gospel because it's the very first instance where John narrates an account that runs parallel with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The, The plain fact is John very rarely covers the same ground as the synoptics. He seems to intentionally try and work in another direction. And he won't do this again until his final account of Jesus' triumphal entry. That'll be the next time he uses the same material that the synoptics are working with. John rarely does that. There's something else unique in this account. John's is the only record that specifically links the feeding of the 5,000 to the time of the Passover. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention that. 6-4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And it seems like John, more than any of the other synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he wants us to know that this happened at Passover. The others don't mention it. And the reason this matters to John is he's the only one, he's the only one who's going to follow up the feeding of the 5,000 with this extended little message from Jesus where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Only John talks about that sermonette from Jesus. So only John mentions that this feeding of the 5,000 with the bread happened at Passover. In other words... John wants this to serve as a visible picture. Physical bread, filling up the emptiness of the crowd's stomach. A picture of Jesus, the bread of life, filling up the deepest desires of those who would come to him. John records this bread miracle to lead into the words of Jesus in John 6, 33 to 35. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. But they're not getting it. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Say more about that in a little bit. Notice also, I said the introduction was long. One more opening thought. I think John means for us to contrast the two responses of the people to the last two miraculous signs that John records in chapter 5 and chapter 6. If you remember... Jesus heals the man by the pool, take up your bed and walk, and he does it on the Sabbath. We just studied that in chapter 5. And look at this. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more, look at this, to kill him. 
because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay? And remember, they want to kill him. They are persecuting him, and they want to kill him. That's what happens when he heals the man by the pool. Now, let's look at the next sign, 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was coming into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again. He heals the guy by the pool, and they want to kill him. He feeds the crowd with the bread, and they want to make him king. Same people. And you feel like saying, well, which is it? So what John wants us to learn is this. There's more than one way to get Jesus wrong. In the one case, they hate him because he was upsetting them. In the other case, they adore him without understanding him. Consider those two responses well, because they get repeated throughout Christendom to this day. When people blunder their encounter with Jesus, they fall into one of these two camps. There are people, maybe people here. There are people who resent Jesus and avoid Jesus because they they quickly discover that Jesus comes with more than just forgiveness. He comes with lordship. If all he came with was forgiveness, everybody would love Jesus. There's much in their enjoyable routines that they discover Jesus won't tolerate. They find that the simple act of, quotes, asking Jesus into their heart also involves throwing out the things that are presently in his place. And self-addicted people find they aren't quite as interested in Jesus as they thought. Then there are those who go wild over Jesus, like those in John chapter 6, those who want to make Jesus their king. They see Jesus as a person who can instantly and constantly feed 5,000 people with a little bit of bread, and who does not want a Jesus like that for a king? People come to Jesus as the great problem solver. They do it in churches every minute somewhere. After all, we, we certainly come here with enough messes that need a magical touch Welcome King Jesus. And there will be empty seats in churches around Newmarket and Ontario because people wildly set their hopes and thought that Jesus would just make all of their problems go away. They wanted to kill him when they found out he came with more than just forgiveness. He was Lord. They wanted to make him king when they thought, this guy can do anything. Strikingly, 
John says Jesus separated himself. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him, take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All of that by way of introduction. Point number one. Some of the things we learned from the text. Devote to Jesus all that you have, even when you know it's nowhere near enough. This is a great account, isn't it? Look at 5 through 9. Lifting his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough to, enough, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. I think the important words are in verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. That's important. John tells us Jesus had already committed himself to performing this miracle. He knew what he would do. He's going to do it. Jesus is going to feed these hungry people. That's already a decision in Jesus' mind. But judging from the space that John devotes to Jesus' questioning of the disciples, we're clearly meant to learn there's a pattern of involvement, the role of Philip and Andrew, and all would-be followers of Jesus facing situations where we just don't seem to have the ability to get it done ourselves. Anybody else in the room facing something and you're not sure you have the ability all by yourself to get it done? Does that speak to anybody's heart? You don't want to put your hand up, but you're all nodding. Yeah, that's us. And here's Jesus' point to his disciples. He says, give me what you have. Don't fail to start. There is no point in just sitting, calculating your shortfall. What are they, like the loaves and the bread, among so many? Nine, verse nine. That's Andrew. Andrew facing a huge problem, and he does what we all do. This is Andrew doing the math. Philip does the same. 5,000, 6,000, let's see, divide by 200 denarii, uh, explains that equals X dollars per person equals not enough food to sustain them. Oh, by the way, check the accounts. We don't have that much money anyway. There's, there, I got it worked out. This won't work. In church, I can't tell you how how precious it is to me, emotional to me, to see Jesus, without telling them in advance what he was going to do, to see Jesus lovingly encouraging his disciples by saying, well, just here, just have the people sit down first. Come on. Let's, let's just start. I know you don't think there's enough here. I get it. Just have them sit down. Let's start. 
That is always the voice of Jesus. This is how you can recognize Jesus talking to your heart in a tough situation. He doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't pretend you're, you're, you're pure and upright through and through. He doesn't pretend you can manage the whole thing on your own. The disciples in Jesus' account have, they would have never started out with that boy's lunch on their own. Never would have started. And you might find yourself in a situation today, this is not stretching the text. This is in the biblical text, what I'm saying. You may find yourself in a situation today where you can't imagine seeing through all that God wants to lead you into in terms of dedication, maybe repentance, commitment, fruitfulness. You, you have no inclination to start. I prayed about that before and it didn't work. I thought God forgave me and I fell into the same sin. You can talk your way into a mess. You have no inclination to start toward wholeness because you've calculated your resources, you've looked at your history, failure over and over again, you've done the depressing math, and you sit here today, this can't work. This can't work. You're convinced of it. And then there's the voice of Jesus. You can always recognize it. The voice of Jesus that always speaks in the present tense. It's the voice that says, come on, just start. Don't look at those 5,000 mouths to feed. Don't look away off at all those people still in the back row. You're not at the back row yet. Just look at the first mouth in the first row and feed it. That's what Jesus says. You can start. Trust me. Don't let your own fear, sometimes your bitterness, that church, bunch of hypocrites. I've told you, whenever someone says your church is full of hypocrites, I say, we're not full. Come. Don't let your own fear or doubt or bitterness keep you from taking the first step in what Jesus is calling you to do. That's as close as I get to pounding the pulpit. Take the first step. You have this one critical moment when the Lord speaks. And this one moment, this start, has more in it than appears right now if you'll just take that step. This is so simple and yet so crippling when it's missed. The devil causes thousands of Christians to freeze in their present condition simply by leading them to postpone or neglect listening to the call of God's Spirit because, because they can't imagine reaching the challenging end of that call rather than just taking the first step that the Lord is calling them. Emerson once said, the great illusion and lie 
is that this present hour is not the critical decisive hour. There's another hour in the future that counts more than this one. But we have a much better authority than Emerson. Our loving, omnipotent Lord tells us all to remember when he speaks, that's the time to start with what you have. I know it isn't enough, but put it in his hands. Okay, point number two. It's a follow-up. While our own works are wicked and proud when used to earn God's favor, when that's the motive, our obedience in response to Christ's call is what engages divine power on our behalf. I like verses 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. You can do that. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the, and it's very clear, John says, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. John is correct in pointing out that Jesus himself actually was the one who began the distribution process. But we know from the synoptics that it wasn't just Jesus, that the disciples were engaged. Matthew says, he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. When he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. That process is repeated so many times in the Gospels that it can't be just a coincidence. The disciples organize the crowd. The disciples continue distributing the bread. The disciples collect the fragments. The disciples, remember, prepare the room for the Passover. Jesus even gets others to move the stone away from the grave of Lazarus. The fact is, it's usually the way he works. He involved his disciples in the smaller works that prepared the way for his bigger works. So a pattern is laid out. And this feeding miracle is no exception. So so don't picture the disciples starting out with a huge supply of already multiplied bread and fish. Like Jesus took the five loaves, two fish, went whoosh, and there was a mountain of food for them to distribute to the crowd. That's not what the text says. A better picture, the bread and the fish kept multiplying after the first row was fed. In other words, there never did appear to be enough. Right to the back row, the action of the disciples was always continuously generated by ongoing trust. They had to keep trusting and ongoing obedience. They had to keep distributing. If they quit, then the bread stops multiplying. 
This is the way it works with all ministry for the Lord. What are you doing for Jesus? It's how it works building your prayer life. There's all sorts of people who never do build a, a strong prayer devotional life because they never kept going with it long enough to find joy in it. And they found out they probably started off, I'm going to start, I'm going to start Monday. I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. I'm going to seek God for an hour. And they thought that would be an easy thing to do. <laughs> and three or four days later, they just said, it's just a lot of work. It's like this with the basic discipline of going to church regularly. The, the, the blessing grows as you continue in it. It's like, it's like developing an attitude for, of, of an appetite for God's Word. It doesn't happen the first time you read the Bible. You, you keep going. It, it multiplies as you keep obeying. It multiplies as you keep obeying. The joy will grow. There's a bigger future for the stubbornly obedient. Feelings of inspiration or no feelings of inspiration. Just keep handing out the bread and the fish. This is the difference, by the way, between faith and magic. We learn that our Lord will almost always work in such a way that we're constantly encouraged to uh, abide in him. That you can't just go lusting after huge, trouble-eliminating blessings. This second point is to teach us to look for the relationship between what we are asking Jesus to do for us and what we are doing in obedience to commit to his rule in our present situation. That leads us into the last point. We're almost done. You can have a lot of accurate knowledge about who Jesus is and yet be wrong about what he's trying to do. Look at 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They're right on a lot of points. Jesus was indeed the predicted prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15, the predicted prophet to come. That was Jesus. They had it right. Jesus did come as the promised Messiah. He did come to establish a kingdom. They weren't far off there. He told the people he had come to set them free. He said that. And he had shown them many confirming signs of his power. So the people were right to be very excited about Jesus, the Christ. And yet they were terribly wrong. They were right about who Jesus was, but they were wrong about what he had come to do. So, so they were wrong on the application of what they knew about Jesus. So the result was they were excited about who Jesus was, but they were at cross purposes with his presence. Maybe you could say they understood Jesus on the surface, just not the center. 
Is this a common problem today? How many people do you know, maybe they don't say these words, but maybe they say something like this or they show this in an attitude. How many people do you know who, who, who are thinking this? I'm finished with Christianity. I'm mad at God. I'm disappointed. He let me down. I brought my situation to him. I thought he was going to help. And things have just gotten worse. Christianity is a scam. It doesn't work. It's very easy. It's very easy if you're not careful to lay a whole foundation for your faith that is cracked and ill-formed. If you have the wrong expectation of the kind of kingdom Jesus wants to establish, you'll be wrong in your whole outlook. The kingdom of Christ, the rule of Christ, there we go. The kingdom of Christ, can you give me your attention again? The rule of Christ in your life and mine is a moral rule. It's a rule of his will, not the rule of pleasant, happy circumstances. It is a rule designed to overthrow all that is sinful and opposed to the glory of God in my self-promoting heart. Now, there is a day coming, not here yet, when this rule will be a visible, physical rule. A rule when all of the marks of the fall will be permanently gone. It is a rule where none will be allowed to oppose Christ's authority. It's a rule where the curse of sickness and death and war and all of the millions of petty expressions of self will be cast into the lake of fire. But for now, the kingdom is a rule of Christ's will over Don Horvath's. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. And yes... There's incredible joy to be found here and now, but it's, a, but it's a joy that follows obedience. It's a joy that grows as we continue abiding in Christ rather than our own self-pursuits. Do you see those words? Perceiving that they were about to come and take, take him by force to make him king. He withdrew to the mountain by himself. You can't. Jesus will never be forced into your kingdom. Jesus rules. His rulership right now is a rulership over my will. It's a rulership over your heart, the affections of your heart, the desires of your heart, the ambitions of your heart. That's where Jesus claims your life and builds his kingdom. And ultimately doesn't look like it maybe from where you're sitting. That's where the joy is. That's where the joy is.